our deepest gratitude and love to Sister Beck, Sister Allred, Sister Thompson, and the Relief Society Board. We've seen of late a growing public interest in the beliefs of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. This is something we welcome because, after all, our fundamental commission is to teach the gospel of Jesus Christ, His doctrine, in all the world. But we must admit there has been and still persists some confusion about our doctrine and how it is established. That is the subject I wish to address today. The Savior taught His doctrine in the meridian of time, and His apostles struggled mightily to preserve it against a barrage of false tradition and philosophy. New Testament epistles cite numerous incidents demonstrating that serious and widespread apostasy was already underway during the Apostles' ministry. The centuries that followed were illuminated by occasional rays of gospel light until, in the 19th century, a brilliant dawn of restoration broke upon the world, and the gospel of Christ, full and complete, was once again upon the earth. This glorious day began when, in a pillar of light above the brightness of the sun, God the Father and His beloved Son, Jesus Christ, visited young Joseph Smith and initiated what would become a virtual flood of revelation linked with divine power and authority. In these revelations, we find what might be termed the core doctrine of the Church of Jesus Christ reestablished upon the earth. Jesus Himself defined that doctrine in these words recorded in the Book of Mormon, another testament of Jesus Christ. This is my doctrine, and it is the doctrine which the Father hath given unto me. And the Holy Ghost beareth record of the Father and me. And I bear record that the Father commandeth all men everywhere to repent and believe in me. And whoso believeth in me and is baptized, the same shall be saved. And they are they who shall inherit the kingdom of God. And whoso believeth not in me and is not baptized shall be damned. And whoso believeth in me believeth in the Father also. And unto him will the Father bear record of me for he will visit him with fire and with the Holy Ghost. Verily, verily, I say unto you that this is my doctrine. And whoso buildeth upon this buildeth upon my rock, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against them. This is our message, the rock upon which we build, the foundation of everything else in the Church. Like all that comes from God, this doctrine is pure. It is clear. It is easy to understand, even for a child. With glad hearts, we invite all to receive it. In the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, we believe all that God has revealed, all that He does now reveal, and we believe that He will yet reveal many great and important things pertaining to the kingdom of God. This is to say that while there is much we do not yet know, the truths and doctrine we have received have come and will continue to come by divine revelation. In some faith traditions, theologians claim equal teaching authority with the ecclesiastical hierarchy, 
and doctrinal matters may become a contest of opinions between them. Some rely on the ecumenical councils of the Middle Ages and their creeds. Others place primary emphasis on the reasoning of post-apostolic theologians or on biblical hermeneutics and exegesis. Translate that. <laughs> we value scholarship that enhances understanding. But in the Church today, just as anciently, establishing the doctrine of Christ or correcting doctrinal deviations is a matter of divine revelation to those the Lord endows with apostolic authority. In 1954, President J. Reuben Clark, then a counselor in the First Presidency, explained how doctrine is promulgated in the Church and the preeminent role of the President of the Church. Speaking of the members of the First Presidency and Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, he stated, We should bear in mind that some of the general authorities have had assigned to them a special calling. They possess a special gift. They are sustained as prophets, seers, and revelators, which gives them a special spiritual endowment in connection with their teaching of the people. They have the rights, the power, and authority to declare the mind and will of God to His people, subject to the overall power and authority of the President of the Church. Others of the general authorities are not given this special spiritual endowment and authority covering their teaching. They have a resulting limitation, and the resulting limitation upon their power and authority in teaching applies to every other officer and member of the Church, for none of them is spiritually endowed as a prophet, seer, and revelator. Furthermore, as just indicated, the President of the Church has a further and special spiritual endowment, for he is the prophet, seer, and revelator for the whole Church. How does the Savior reveal His will and doctrine to prophets, seers, and revelators? He may act by messenger or in His own person. He may speak by His own voice or by the, by the voice of the Holy Spirit, a communication of spirit to spirit that may be expressed in words or in feelings that convey understanding beyond words. He may direct Himself to His servants individually or acting in counsel. I cite two illustrations from the New Testament. The first was a revelation directed to the head of the Church. Early in the book of Acts, we find the apostles of Christ declaring the gospel message only to Jews, following the pattern of Jesus' ministry. But now, in the Lord's timetable, the time had come for a change. In Joppa, Peter had a dream that was repeated three times. He saw a variety of animals lowered to earth from heaven in a great sheet knit at the four corners and was commanded to kill and eat. Peter was reluctant, since at least some of the animals were unclean under the law of Moses, and Peter had never violated the commandment against eating such. Nevertheless, the voice said to Peter in his dream, What God hath cleansed, that call not thou common. The meaning of this dream became clear when, soon afterward, several men sent from the Roman centurion Cornelius arrived at Peter's lodging with a request that he come teach their master. Cornelius had gathered a sizable group of relatives and friends, and finding them expectantly waiting to receive his message, Peter said, 
God hath showed me that I should not call any man common or unclean. Of a truth, I perceive that God is no respecter of persons, but in every nation he that feareth him and worketh righteousness is accepted with him. While Peter yet spake these words, the Holy Ghost fell on all them which heard the word. And they who accompanied Peter were astonished, because that on the Gentiles also was poured out the gift of the Holy Ghost. Then answered Peter, Can any man forbid water that these should not be baptized, which have received the Holy Ghost as well as we? By this experience and revelation to Peter, the Lord modified the practice of the Church and revealed a more complete doctrinal understanding to His disciples. And so the preaching of the gospel expanded to encompass all mankind. Later in the book of Acts, we find another somewhat related illustration, this time showing how revelation on matters of doctrine may come in a council setting. A controversy arose about whether circumcision required under the law of Moses should carry over as a commandment in the gospel and Church of Christ. And the apostles and elders came together for to consider this matter. Our record of this council is certainly incomplete, but we're told that after, quote, much disputing, unquote, Peter, the senior apostle, rose up and declared what the Holy Spirit had confirmed to him. He reminded the council that when the gospel began to be preached to the uncircumcised Gentiles in the house of Cornelius, they received the Holy Ghost just as had the circumcised Jewish converts. God, he said, put no difference between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why tempt ye God to put a yoke upon the neck of the disciples which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ we shall be saved, even as they. Thereafter, Paul, Barnabas, and perhaps others spoke in support of Peter's declaration. James moved that the decision be implemented by letter to the Church, and the Council was united with one accord. In the letter announcing their decision, the Apostles said, It seemed good to the Holy Ghost and to us. Or in other words, this decision came by divine revelation through the Holy Spirit. These same patterns are followed today in the restored Church of Jesus Christ. The President of the Church may announce or interpret doctrines based on revelation to Him. Doctrinal exposition may also come through the combined council of the First Presidency and Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. Council deliberations will often include a weighing of canonized scriptures, the teachings of Church leaders, and past practice. But in the end, just as in the New Testament Church, the objective is not simply consensus among Council members, but revelation from God. It is a process involving both reason and faith for obtaining the mind and will of the Lord. At the same time, it should be remembered that not every statement made by a Church leader, past or present, necessarily constitutes doctrine. It is commonly understood in the Church that a statement made by one leader on a single occasion often represents a personal, though well-considered, opinion 
not meant to be official or binding for the whole Church. The Prophet Joseph Smith taught that a prophet is a prophet only when he is acting as such. President Clark, quoted earlier, observed, To this point runs a simple story my father told me as a boy. I do not know on what authority, but it illustrates the point. His story was that during the excitement incident to the coming of Johnston's army, Brigham Young preached to the people in a morning meeting a sermon vibrant with defiance to the approaching army and declaring an intention to oppose and drive them back. In the afternoon meeting, he arose and said that Brigham Young had been speaking in the morning, but that the Lord was going to talk now. He then delivered an address, the tempo of which was the opposite from the morning talk. Quote, the Church will know by the testimony of the Holy Ghost in the body of the members whether the brethren in voicing their views are moved upon by the Holy Ghost, and in due time that knowledge will be made manifest." Unquote. The Prophet Joseph Smith confirmed the Savior's central role in our doctrine in one definitive sentence. The fundamental principles of our religion are the testimony of the apostles and prophets concerning Jesus Christ, that He died, was buried, and rose again the third day and ascended into heaven. And all other things which pertain to our religion are only appendages to it. Joseph Smith's testimony of Jesus is that He lives, for He saw Him, even on the right hand of God. And he heard the voice bearing record that he is the only begotten of the Father. I appeal to all who will hear or read this message to seek through prayer and study of the scriptures that same witness of the divine character, the Atonement, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Accept his doctrine by repenting, being baptized, receiving the gift of the Holy Ghost, and then throughout your life following the laws and covenants of the gospel of Jesus Christ. As our Easter celebration approaches, I express my own witness that Jesus of Nazareth was and is the Son of God, the very Messiah of ancient prophecy. He is the Christ who suffered in Gethsemane, died on the cross, was buried, and who indeed rose again the third day. He is the resurrected Lord through whom we shall all be resurrected, and by whom all who will may be redeemed and exalted in His heavenly kingdom. This is our doctrine, confirming all prior testaments of Jesus Christ and stated anew for our own time. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.